Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. This type of episode is the main type now. It's a longer form interview in which I also discuss an interesting topic and some news in quantum computing with my interview guest. I'm calling it a hybrid episode. So before I start this podcast, I want to give a huge shout out to the Quantum Daily because they worked with me to set this episode up, um, get David on the show. So go check out thequantumdaily.com to learn more about everything going on in quantum computing and quantum tech. Quantum tech, like what I talked about in this episode with David Gunnarsson, who is the chief sales officer at Blue Force. I got to ask him all about dilution refrigerators, how they work, why they're quantum, and more. Take it away, me from the past. Hello, today I have with me David Gunnarsson, who is the Chief Sales Officer at Blue Force, a company that specializes in cold things, so cryogenic, um, cryogenics, dilution refrigerators, all that sort of stuff. David, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Ethan. It's really fun to talk about our cryogenics. Yeah, so before we get into what exactly Blue Force does, um, could you give us a bit of your background and how you got into the space, which um, I will I'll note right off the bat isn't exactly quantum computing, um, but we'll get into why some of this stuff actually is quantum, even if it doesn't, if it's just sort of related to quantum computing. So yeah, yes. um, a bit of your background, please. So my background is uh, in science. So I have a PhD in physics. I think 10 years, what is it now? 15 years ago, I got my PhD. Time goes fast. And yeah. until I joined Blue Force, I have done research uh, in similar field, low temperatures and actually quantum technology, quantum technology, uh, computing. <laughs> so my background is sort of within this, uh, this field and low temperature. So before yeah. joining Blue Force, I used their instruments also. As, as a practitioner. Uh, interesting. So you use, did you use Blue Force um, specifically or just in general you used um, dilution refrigerators, cryogenics, that sort of stuff from other companies? So, so I've, I've used actually most kinds. So the last one I used was actually Blue Force before I joined. So, yeah. but uh, I, I've used other, other competitive and older systems, which, which were not as easy as today's systems were. Yeah, interesting. Uh, actually, could you give us a little bit of information on what made those those older systems a little bit harder? Like what new technology makes it easier to use the, the new systems? So I think uh, that's a little bit Blue Force story or how Blue Force actually got into the whole game of, of, of doing cryogenic uh, uh, measurement systems and uh, traditionally th this dilution refrigerators is uh, quite old old technology it's been around for 40 50 years and and the way you did it was that you had liquefied a lot of helium and maybe also nitrogen and you dipped down your sort of system into this liquid and the problem with that is that you have to refill that liquid continuously or or once a day or once every day. So mm -hmm. it became quite a lot of work to work with. And uh, 
and by doing that, there was also other technical complications. So you, your skill level had to be very high to operate them, and you have to always be there in principle to make sure that they operated correctly. And uh, that 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 changed when uh, some uh, there's a closed loop cooler called a pulse tube, and that's something that the dry dilution refrigerators that that is sort of uh, on the market today are operating with. So they actually replaced okay. the need for liquid helium and you have a closed loop cooler instead. So that revolutionized sort of the whole field 12 years ago. And uh, that's where Blue Force started. And they made use of that technology at the same time as the founders back then, Rob Blagvers and Peter Vossemann, they also uh, redeveloped the dilution unit itself and how, how you actually use it with a drive system. And I think that has been the basis for the success of, of Blue Force uh, systems in the field. Okay, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so some of that, some of that um, advancement is coming from scientific advancements um, and us learning more about quantum computing. And um, you mentioned before or rather than quantum computing, quantum physics in general. Um, and you mentioned before we started that quantum computers are quantum, yes, um, but a lot of people don't realize that the dilution refrigerators around them are um, already quantum. Uh, I guess I'm wondering, what did you mean by that? What quantum properties are we using in dilution refrigerators to get them down to that cold of temperatures? Yes. No, so it, it's... Uh... The dilution unit in itself, it, it's utilizing uh, uh, two helium isotopes uh, in a closed loop uh, cycle where you sort of circulate liquid and gas to be able to reach this really low temperature which a dilution refrigerator can reach. So the base temperature of a commercial dilution refrigerator is well below 10 millikelvin. So wow. 10 10 thousands above absolute zero so uh, uh, so to do that the properties of these two two isotopes helium-3 isotope and helium-4 isotope is luckily such that when they liquefy and passes a certain temperature the, their description physical description is very different so hmm. one is a superfluid and the other one is a very regular fluid but they are described by two completely different uh, statistics. So it's one is a bosonic uh, particle or liquid, and the other one is, is a fermionic liquid, which means that they actually have a very interesting uh, interaction that in the end leads to the possibility to actually cool, cool this system to millikelvin temperatures. So in that sense, they are uh, described by a quantum quantum phenomenon and quite quite intricate one and i think the reason i say it's also quantum is that low temperature physics when it started where they actually cooled down helium free liquefied it to these low temperatures and even further down down to micro kelvins uh, have used all the te techniques that you use today in quantum computing through nuclear magnetic uh, spin resonance they sort of okay. excite the helium-free molecules and they read out 
the collective signal of, of the liquids to study its properties. And because it's a very clean system, so it, it's composed of an ensemble of, of helium-free atoms that is a very pure system and that you can do NMR-type experiments on. So in that sense, it is really a quantum system. This technology has existed a long time ago in these low-temperature regimes. Hmm. That, that's super interesting. And um, I wanted to go back to something that you very briefly mentioned, which is that the base temperature is below 10 millikelvin. Um, yes. I guess what my, my guess is that um, your base temperature, if you've got nothing in the dilution refrigerator, is below 10 millikelvin. And then once you start adding in things like the superconducting chips that you need for quantum computing, um, and you start adding in some energy to um, you know, change the state of the qubits, all of that technology, yes. you bring the temperature up a little bit. Is that is that correct? Yes. So by definition, base temperature is when there is no input heat to the system or at least to your experimental space. So as soon as you start doing excitations, the temperature will rise. But hmm. of course, these quantum circuits that most people use, they dissipate very little energy. So uh, a strong point in a Blufer system has always been the cooling power, which is sort of the measure of how much, how, how well you can keep it cold while sort of dissipating heat in your circuits, hmm. etc. And uh, the level you have around 10 millikelvin is is a few microwatts. So that is the level of cooling power that you oh. can take away and still keep 10 millikelvin. So if you have w one or two qubits, I think you will maybe not notice it because it's going to be below microwatt level. But of course, when you start scaling this up to 10, 20, 30, and you actually start having amplification stages, etc., at your base plate or the experimental space, then of course the temperature will slowly rise up. But usually I think people operate uh, below 50 millikelvin, at least for superconducting qubits. That, that is sort of where they usually see a change in, in the in performance of their qubits. So I think typically their circuits are somewhere around 50 millikelvin. And so you said that the the cooling power was very important, and that's sort of what stands out with Blue Force technology. Yes. Um, and I, I didn't quite catch what you said, but it sounded like you said either milli or um, microwatt. Which one was it? A, a microwatt. Microwatt. Wow. That doesn't seem like very much. Like I hear micro and I think small. Yes. Is, like in comparison, um, how would you compare that to something in the real world that we all sort mm -hmm. of know how much power it's drawing uh, so in the real world let's see that that's a tricky question <laughs> i'm trying to figure <laughs> something out so of course yes, putting you uh, on the spot a little bit uh, yes so i think uh, if you look yeah it's hard to have a very good example well, of course if you just have a resistive element the noise mm -hmm. that is emitted from that in room temperature is sort of uh, on the level of microwatts, if I'm not mistaken, like, uh, depending on your bandwidth. But uh, so, so it's something that uh, 
you usually don't don't sort of uh, notice. Yeah, I actually don't have I don't have a good analogy of of how small it is. Okay. In, yeah, in power, it's actually not a, it's not too small power actually. Microwatts is 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 uh, in an electric circuit. It's something that is is uh, that you might have in a processor or or something else per transistor mm. or something like that. I think it's maybe okay. a little bit closer to milli milliwatts. So it's uh, it's a factor maybe a thousand lower than that. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. And so then, um, do you want the power to be your cooling power to be higher or lower? I think of course uh, people want as much as possible because then okay. it, because doing an experiment in in these uh, measurement systems that that Bluefrost provides. It requires quite some planning, so it's it's not sort of a, it has many stages before you reach the the base plate where you have the ten millikelvin. So you actually have usually five cooling stages in a system. This is sort of a little bit arbitrary, but that's the standard configuration. And and at each stage, going from room temperature down, you take out energy of the input lines that you actually need to control your experiment or right. or the heat that comes from the structure itself of the system. So so actually you start up at 50 Kelvin and takes out of the order of 50 watts. And then you're down okay. at 3 Kelvin, you take out the order of a watt. And then you are at 1 Kelvin, then you take out the order of 10, 10 milliwatts. And then you go to something we call the cold plate, there you take out the order of hundreds of microwatts, and then you are at the base plate. So, so, so you plan your experiment to make sure that the heat is taken out where you actually have the possibility to take it out. But of course, when you scale an experiment, you're always going to want more cooling power because you will always have a passive input, and of course, there will be sort of a dissipation from your circuitry also that needs to be taking care of without heating up the system right yeah so then is is it another consideration that when you go down in levels if you are using if you're using too much power too cool um yeah. if you're using too much too many watts to cool you're just going to add more noise and energy into the system no no, so I think the, the okay. cooling power is sort of it reaches an equilibrium all the time. So, so if you okay. don't heat our system in a certain setting, will will sort of cool the system until it doesn't have any more cooling power per se. But if you then add, let's say, one microwatt, the temperature will go up one step until it's in equilibrium with that setting, and and then okay. one microwatt will flow away. And the temperature will be a little bit higher, but it will stay at that temperature and will be a stable, stable setting. Got it. So then I'm wondering, how do you, is, is there, are there tools inside of the dilution refrigerator that you can use to measure what processes are going on? I guess um, outside of, say, whatever experiment you have in there, um, be it a quantum computer or else. Yeah. No, so so to be able to verify first of all that you actually are at ten millikelvin is actually not a trivial task. It's yeah. 
in, in the beginning of Blue Force, that was one of one of the big obstacles to do a good diagnostic system of the temperature and and also the control of the temperature by applying heat to sort of set the temperature at different uh, settings. And okay. this is something uh, that uh, is hard because there is actually there is no real temperature standard at these low temperatures. There is uh, there is uh, some some sort of uh, joint agreement that uh, that that sort of people follow that are not primary thermometers. So it's not a temperature that comes directly from natural uh, constants and the direct measurable. So they always need to be oh. calibrated in, in some sense. Interesting. Uh, but the the way so coming back to this like diagnostics of the fridge that that was a quite complicated matter because we you we decided to use uh, resistive thermometers so we actually okay. measured the thermo thermo conductance of 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 a, of a resistance and and the way that one depends on temperature hmm. and at the lowest uh, you you cannot the, the trick here is then that you can actually not use like just put the voltmeter in and measure the resistance so you need to have a very low uh, excitation so the power that you put into this this resistor has to be on the le level of femtowatts so now we wow. were talking microwatts before but we are talking about the very low power and and the main reason for that is that we don't want the resistor itself to self-heat because of right. course the heat has to be because we have microwatts in the system so that's not the problem but the problem is to get the heat from that uh, resistive film out to the fridge and that is always a thermal barrier there so so that's why you always want to keep it the excitation as low as possible so it doesn't affect uh, that there is internal heating of, of the resistor so you actually measure the temperature where it actually sits so so that is actually it, it is uh, requires a quite uh, delicate uh, measurement setup already to measure these temperatures yeah this way yeah so and, then oh um i was gonna ask hmm? how do you get the power down so low to femtowatts um are there is, is there special technology that goes into that i, I think you it's not so hard to maybe get the power that low. You you you, you need okay. some. You can use room temperature circuitry to do that. Uh, the hard part is of course to measure it when it's so low. Mm. So, yeah. so, so there you need you need amplification and you need quite good filtering and good packaging to make sure that the signal is very clean. So, so huh. it, it's a it's a type of lock-in measurement that you do. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, so if you find out that the quantum the dilution refrigerator or your quantum experiment is outside of the bounds, um, mm. or maybe there's just regular maintenance, I guess I'm wondering how would you detect the issues that would lead to maybe having to do some maintenance? Um, mm. Because I'm 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 picturing you know these big chandeliers that we yeah. see, and you've yes. got to pull the whole thing apart and put it back together very precisely or something like that. Hmm. Um, I guess, yeah. How does how does dilution refrigerator maintenance work? No, so, so the so the dilution refrigerator itself, it, it's uh, 
it's the chandelier, as you say, that that's the sort of the central part. And yeah. that whole thing is inside a vacuum. So when it's operating, you actually don't see the chandelier. It, it's all enclosed. And it has actually quite a lot of radiation shields. So as you say, there is quite some infrastructure closing up this system, uh, mm -hmm. ev evacuating it to vacuum. So, so that already is, of course, some work to do. It takes one or two hours to sort of prepare, pre prepare that uh, cool down. Um, then after that, you actually have to start taking all the heat out of the, out of the system. So of course, uh, the material used is usually copper because it's a good conductor at these low temperatures. So the mass of the system is quite high. So there's a lot of heat from room temperature that needs to be taken out from this system. And, and uh, that, that takes some time. So a typical cool down is for an empty system of ours, standard system is around 20, 24 hours. So that is, of course, a quite wow. long cycle in that sense. Um, but com coming back to sort of, uh, if you look at the maintenance of a system, the, mm -hmm. the cooling of the dilution unit itself, it, it requires quite a big heart or like a pumping heart. So there is a gas handling system connected to the system that circulates this helium-3 and helium-4. And that consists of three to four pumps and, and a compressor. So that's the part that is sort of the most sensitive to sort of long-term wear because it's, it's mechanical. Right. But the system itself usually is quite stable. So I think it's, and of course the pump parts, they are in room temperature, so that it's sort of regular maintenance maintenance as for any other equipment that that requires pumping etc yeah. but uh, but as i said it takes 24 hours to cool it down and it takes roughly 24 hours to warm it up so if there is a critical failure that means that they have to open it up you, there is some time to do the service so yeah. that's of course why it's very important to plan the measurement infrastructure for for your experiments, especially if you start to have a lot of, of, of uh, components that you need to work together, like in a quantum computer. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. And I guess, how hard is it on the machine if you if you raise it from, to room temperature from almost absolute zero? Because hmm. I know um, you get some expanding and contracting Hmm. in different places if you did that a bunch of times would the machine just shatter or what would happen no so so this is something when we manufacture our systems that is something that is of course one of the critical parts when you do cryogenics and that's why hmm. people avoid it because it's one more parameter that you have to take into consideration as you said thermal contraction and 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 there's also material fatigue that might be a problem hmm. because it, due to the thermal cycle that uh, things sort of uh, change their properties over time. But uh, the community, there is a lot of uh, tricks how to sort of prepare yourself for that. You do you do training of the material and that usually is a quite good good starting point and that makes, the, makes them very robust to these uh, cool, cooling cycles. So it's not, uh, it's not so critical, but it is something one has to keep in mind and the commercial systems that exist today that is less of a problem it's uh, 
old material and 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 uh, ways of uh, fusing materials are done in a way that uh, this uh, thermal contractions are not so critical so it's huh. but um. it, it, but it is something that requires uh, some engineering for sure so that is it's an old field but this is all the knowledge that has sort of come into these modern mas- machines like, to, to make sure that they they work reliably yeah and you said um, you said training the material. What is training the material? So it's a thermal cycle that you you shock treat it, for example. So so most thermal contraction actually stops around fifty at around fifty Kelvin for for most materials. So the okay. last the last bit down to the millikelvin is maybe not so sensitive. It, there's not much that changes. So the big change is from room temperature down to 50 Kelvin. So one way to do it is that you take the ready piece and then you actually dip it in liquid nitrogen fast several times. And that is sort of a way to sort of stress the material and also train it to see that if, if, if you do this, does it sort of change something so you cannot use it? So. Very interesting. So it's a great uh, then, brute force technique in that sense to sort of train it. Yeah. Uh, the the last thing I wanted to ask about mm-hmm. was I was scrolling through the Blue Force website before you know getting ready for the podcast, um, yes. and I noticed that you have a there's a horizontal style of dilution refrigerator. So everyone has seen the the chandelier like what IBM has where it hangs from the ceiling. Um, but then you also have this one where it's sort of rotated 90 degrees yes. and sticks off to the side. Um, what would be the advantages to having a horizontal one like that? No, so that was actually, Bluefors is the first one that actually developed a fully horizontal dilution refrigerator. So, uh, And the, the advantage is for certain type of experiments. So I think the first one that Bluefors did was to fit into beamline uh, stations. So, uh, if you have an accelerator, you usually have a station where you conduct your experiment and you have access to your beam. And in a setting like that, you would like to have something that you can get very close. So, if you have it in this horizontal setting, you can easily get your sample, with, which is in the end of the horizontal uh, system, instead of having mm. it in the bottom. So you can push it in quite close. So in that sense, you it, it's quite easy to sort of access it and also roll it back when you don't need it. Yeah. So I think that was the main main motivation for horizontal to sort of get get good access to this type of uh, uh, beam line beam line experimental sites. Interesting. Uh, and another uh, that that came later was that this horizontal actually also was very good for. Uh, radio radio t- telescopes so actually the next generation of these systems we actually developed uh, for for people that would put them on a telescope because they are also tiltable this horizontal system so you can actually move them while they are at low temperatures interesting so then they put actually a detector array at the end of that horizontal tube well inside of course but uh, and then mm-hmm. they can point this uh, to, to, to space or to whatever the detector should should uh, monitor. So I think huh. that's the key features for this horizontal system. 
Very interesting. Um, and so to sort of wrap up the the show, I always ask the same questions. Um, yeah. You might want to take it a little bit different way because I asked yeah. about quantum computing. You might want to take it to cryogenics or dilution yeah. refrigerators. Um, but I ask, um, what do you see as the biggest problem in quantum computing? I think it's currently it is, of course, getting good qubits, at least for technology that is in, in my field of cryogenics. Uh, it it's uh, I think there is demonstrations of 50, 60, or maybe even 100 qubits have sort of uh, maybe not been made, but the, the, the route for 100 qubits is also there. But mm -hmm. uh, I think the, to, to be able to sort of understand how to isolate these qubits and make them so inert that they actually have very long life lived uh, properties it is a challenge, and I think that is, I think that's where a lot of attention still needs needs to be put. I think from the cryogenics point of view, there is also things that needs to be. If you want to start having thousand qubits, our systems we have today need to be further developed. So I think yeah. we are equipped with current technology to maybe have a few hundred qubits, but then. As you know, the goal of quantum computing is, of course, to have millions of qubits. So, right. I, uh, so then, of course, cryogenics also will, if cryogenics still is needed, say also that that is, of course, a question mark, which technology will be the one that is strongest contender here in the end. But I, I would say to, to make sure that you get the qubit that you can control uh, easily and that you also can... Uh, sort of have high high quality and long lifetimes of, of the states in, in these systems. Yeah. I, I heard a talk from John Martinez earlier that was a few weeks ago, and I think it was a good point that quantum computers actually need control also, and that's something that traditional transistors actually don't have so much control. It's sort of, it's just on-off, but in a quantum computer, you actually need active control to make it work. So, so that layer is also a complication. It's a challenge, but it's not impossible. So I think it's just a matter of of uh, efforts put into the into it. But yeah, yeah. And so then yeah. the other question is: What do you see as the biggest promise coming out of quantum computing or quantum technologies in the next about ten years? No, so, so we didn't take. So of course, the use cases that are presented quite a lot in, in, in popular media and, and mainstream media. They are, of course, all very useful things. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, if, if you can use this computational power that is promised, it will rev revolutionize ways that is very complicated today. So I think one example is, of course, this COVID uh, vaccine was something that was accelerated a lot by, by using supercomputers. And if a quantum computer would give a quantum advantage to that, you would increase the, the sort of uh, speed of how you can simulate uh, systems that are complex. And I think it doesn't matter if it's economics, if it's na natural systems, chemistry, even biology, I would say. You, you, if you can get a generic quantum simulator, you, you might have a very powerful entity that, that can be used to sort of 
make make it possible for you to predict pr- predict your your sort of uh, your system to a very high degree. So I think that's that that promise, of course, is why everyone is investing in this. You, you will have the fortune teller in, in your hand, sort of. I guess that's what physics is about. You need to understand how how the future sort of uh, changes by doing simulation or modeling it. So yeah, yeah, that's definitely um, the big promise. Is mm. what I'm hearing is all of quantum computing. <laughs> No, no, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and so as we wrap up, where can people find out more about you and Blue Force and what you're working on? So I think the best is to go to our webpage, www.blueforce.com. And if you want to know more about cryogenics and, and uh, especially dilution refrigerators, I, I think a good source is Wikipedia. They have a very good page on dilution refrigeration there also. And there is information on Blue Force page also, and and we have some YouTube videos also telling more about our our systems and how they work. Okay, well, awesome, uh, David. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Ethan. All right, so I didn't get any corrections, um, but I did get a couple questions and some comments. So to start off, I got a comment from Caleb, um, and as well as a question. Um, Caleb says, I'm caught up in real time. Uh, Mikhail's concern for QC ethics, Dr. Savoy's background in EA of big data-ish systems, and your aversion to proprietary platforms fascinated me to ask, does government as a customer imply proprietary ownership of QC outcomes and is that ethical? Um, I answered this a little bit on Twitter uh, because that's where Caleb asked this. Uh, and what I said is not super sure. I, it sort of depends on the setup of whatever contract is done with the government. Um, the Freedom of Information Act or FOIA might play into this a little bit, but I am no legal or <laughs> anything expert. So I don't really have a good answer for this. Um, if anyone does, please reach out to me and let me know what you think. And then um, from William, who we have heard from before, uh, he asked me via email, is there some kind of governing body or industry standard committee that defines what the quantum volume algorithm is, or are we still in the Wild West stage where each company defines their own QV algorithm? Is QV a standardized industry-wide metric? So there's not really a govern governing body um, in the vein of like NIST um, or some agreed upon governing body. Um, the quantum volume algorithm is a single algorithm. The different companies don't have their own versions. Uh, and that algorithm was proposed by IBM in a paper a while back. Um, I believe that paper was linked to in the show notes of the Amir Neve episode that um, William is referencing here. So go check that out. Um, but yeah, so it is a industry standard more or less. However, um, there's a new, there's a new way of looking at things from IonQ that they just put out called algorithmic qubits. Um, if you look up algorithmic qubits, IonQ, it should come up. Um, but it's not, it's not standardized, like I said, in the way that a government 
a government body has said, here is the standard, everyone uses the standard, it's just sort of generally agreed upon that this is kind of a, it's, it's a pretty good way of judging how good a quantum computer is. Um, the second question was, my impression is that given two configurations, all else being equal, if one has fewer errors than the other, then it will have a higher QV rating. Is this true? Yes, it is. Um, it's not, however, that, um, like Amir was saying in that episode, it's not that you will um, be able to calculate how much higher necessarily, um, but in general, if you have lower errors, it will probably be... Um, a higher quantum volume because you're able to run deeper circuits while still getting the expected results. Again, um, go listen to the Amir episode. He talked a little bit more about that, and the show notes, I think, had some, some pretty good information. Um, and then third question was, in your opinion, will it take many more physics ad advancements to get from 64 qubit machine to a 1000 qubit machine, or will it mainly take software advancements to get there? Uh, I think I think this is in reference to, I've talked a bit about um, physics advancements versus engineering advancements. Um, and physics advancements, yes, um, I think we... I... I I am personally optimistic that we can get there mainly with engineering advancements. So that's small incremental changes where we take the uh, the transistor that we already have and we pack it in smaller and smaller and put more and more on a chip. Um, sorry, in the in the classical analogy. So in the classical analogy, a physics advancement is going from the vacuum tube to the transistor. And then an engineering advancement is making the um, vacuum tube or transistor smaller and smaller. Um, and I think that we might see one or two more um, physics advancements before we hit the 1,000 qubit machine. But I think we'll have a pretty useful 1,000 qubit machine with mainly um, engineering advancements. So that's the questions and the comments that I got from this last episode. Um, if you have anything that you want to ask me or tell me, yell at me for doing wrong, um, please let me know. Uh, you can find me on minds.com. You can shoot me an email and you can reach out to me on Twitter. Sometimes works. Um, however, I'm not on there very often, so it might take me a while to see it and get back to you. Um, if you want to, you can send me an Anchor voice message. There's a link to that in the show notes, links to all of these in the show notes. And um, if you want to, I will put the Anchor voice message on the podcast. If you don't want me to, I will not. So as per our usual arrangement, links to all the things that David mentioned are in the show notes not, as per our usual arrangement, you'll also notice a couple other things in the show notes. Namely, I got my Spotify wrapped for 2020, um, wrapped for podcasters, and my listeners grew most in India. Shout out to any listeners from India. I got 824% growth um, in India. Uh, people listen to quantum computing now in 48 different countries around the world in 2020. That's awesome. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. 
there was a 660% increase in followers and a 523% increase in the amount of time listened. So the people who have followed but not listened, not, not doing their fair share, you got you to gotta pick it up. Um, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Um, thank you everyone for listening and for following. I really appreciate it. I was blown away when I saw the Spotify wrapped um, and also this this next one, which is 178th most popular tech podcast in the United States, which is pretty cool. Um, 178 is, I, I have no idea how much that is because I don't have a baseline of how many quantum computing pod or how many tech podcasts there are in the USA. Um, but I'm honored that I am, you know, not 11,000th. The other thing that you'll see in the show notes is um, a couple links to quantum chess stuff. Um, I was in the Q2B quantum chess tournament, and I just want to take this time to give a shout out to the organizers, um, a shout out to uh, Alex and Peter Johnson at Zapata. Um, thanks for helping me prepare. Big shout out to my opponent, Sean, um, who for the excellent match, who, you know, kicked my butt at the end there. Um, and I just want to encourage everyone to go get quantum chess. Uh, if you enjoy chess and if you enjoy quantum computing, um, then this is perfect for you. If you don't enjoy chess, oh well. And if you don't enjoy quantum computing, what are you doing here? Uh, um, and if anyone ever wants to hit me up, or sorry, if anyone ever wants to play around, please uh, hit me up and I will be more than happy to hop on quantum chess and show you how it's done. <laughs> Um, if you would like to support me so that I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. Um, there's a link to the show notes, or you can send me some crypto. Uh, Bitcoin recently passed uh, 23k last I heard, uh, so uh, I don't have Bitcoin addresses, but I've got addresses for the quantum-resistant ledger, Monero, and Ethereum in the show notes. If you want to um, send me some of that, that would be much appreciated. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with TheQuantumDaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out TheQuantumDaily.com, which I've linked to in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.